how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Necessity, said Bashar Salahuddin about his path to screenwriting, as he and his writing partner, Gala Riddle, were limited in which roles they were given, even in sketch comedy performances or in early L.A. The duo felt there hadn't been a, quote, boisterous black sketch comedy show in L.A. since Keenan Ivory Wayans in Living Color in the early 90s. They started writing goofy sketches, like Malcolm X doing stand-up and eventually led to video and viral stuff where they were spotted by David Allen Greer, Jimmy Fallon, and Bernie Mac. Eventually, the writers landed jobs on shows like The Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, The Maya Rudolph Show, Maya and Marty, The Last OG, and Sherman's Showcase. In this interview, they talk about their appreciation for Jim Henson, the comedy tool belt, what it means to do your reps as a sketch comedian, the world building of Southside, and why they don't write, quote, hug it out episodes. You know, Diallo and I had, had, had you know, we obviously were in college and we kind of realized, okay, we want to be in entertainment. And like, you know, we were in LA and at the time, both of us were in two different sketch comedy troops. And we were like, these are small troops, and yet we were still kind of hitting like a weird... LA small step comedy troupe glass ceiling. It was really hilarious where it was like he was in the troupe and he was like, Man, they always got me playing the co-pilot, and I can't even play the pilot. And I was like, Yeah, man, they always got me playing the chef. I mean, even the sketches that don't have a chef, somehow I end up playing a chef in the sketch. And we were like, We gotta do our own thing. And like and this thing is about superheroes, and yet I'm the cook. I don't yeah, why am I cooking? There's no cooking on the, on the you know the Justice League orbital platform. Why is there the kitchen scene? And so we were like, all right, well, uh, we should do our own thing. And I think that really, you know, I think both of us have felt kind of comfortable with writing. Um, but I think it wasn't until we really realized, like, look, we're not going to be able to, to, to do the funny stuff we want to do unless we write it ourselves. Um, and so I think that's where it came from, was just wanting to make sure that, you know, we were doing stuff that made us laugh and that we were proud of. And, and I think the natural response to that, so well, we got to write our own stuff. 
And so what were some of those early characters like? What were you trying to do, obviously, besides just like not a chef? But what were some of those first things (laughs) you were trying to do with comedy? I mean, we we really started with this. This is a really cool thing. We had a, a sketch comedy troupe. Um, that was in LA and I'm proud to say that just about everybody in that troupe is still working and thriving. Some of them have won Emmy, some of them are directing and acting on different TV shows. Uh, but we were just trying to be really funny. You know, I think we felt like not since in living color had there been a really fun, cool, like, you know, boisterous black sketch comedy show in LA. So we started one and, um, you know, we just, it was, we had really goofy sketches about like, we had a sketch about Malcolm X uh, doing stand-up comedy when he first came out. <laughs> um, we had a sketch about a black dude who goes to a uh, all-black poetry reading and does a spoken word poem about his white girlfriend. Um, you know, just goofy, silly, and like we were kind of lucky in that, like the audience was just there for it. And I think from that, we were like, well, let's start doing, you know, some some video stuff. We actually got contacted to do some viral videos. And then from that, we ended up doing a a sketch comedy series that you can actually still get on YouTube Uh, many, many years ago. You can see the much younger versions of us. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. The message. We were were effortlessly skinny. Yeah, exactly. I I look at those guys and I go, man, those guys (laughs) not eat after six o'clock. And, uh, you know, but yeah, we were were like doing sketch comedy. And it was kind of cool because that actually is one of the ways that both David Allen Greer and Jimmy Fallon found us. And, and kind of helped us get our, our writers guild cards uh was from some of the web series sketches that we were doing and we were just making you know that was really the first time last thing i'll say that was the first time anybody had ever given us any money to actually do anything and so you know we spent every single penny on on sketch comedy and we, we really made a lot of stuff it was so much fun actually here's a fun fact we got uh, some of our first money for that sketch group from bernie mack uh, one of our members worked with Bernie and he gave us, I believe he gave us $750, uh, which at that time, basically we felt like millionaires. Cause that, that could buy us a lot of wig and ma- a lot of wigs and makeup. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of wizard so, costumes and yeah, exactly. Fake ears. You can get. <laughs> <laughs> how many different talents do you think performers need today? Cause you kind of have to know how to film and shoot like viral videos. You also have to know some improv how, how many tools does like a comedian need today to do sketch comedy? I mean, I think everybody's different. You know, some people are just really good at one thing. They're just an amazing actor. And then, you know, they luck out and somebody in Hollywood sees the, do their craft and then they, they advance. But uh, I do think that guys like me and Bashir, uh, Issa Rae, you know, there, there is a whole new crop of people who are, you know, hopefully convincing on camera, <laughs> um, but also, are very capable of writing the story that they want to, you know, perform in. And on top of that, know enough, have enough of a producer head on their shoulder to be able to produce it. Right. Because I do think that there is a lot to be said about uh, shooting it yourself and, and coming up the way that we all decidedly came up, you know, you start with a web series, you know, hopefully some people see it uh, because it is much harder to just write a script and then, you know, come to Hollywood and, ask people to read your script. You know, it might be a great script. You might get terrible notes with people telling you to change it. Um, Even with our own career, I will say that Bashir and I have been most successful when we've written a script and then gone out and shot a sizzle. We've written many pilot that has not gone to series. uh, And and sometimes you look back and you're like, should we have shot a sizzle reel on that? With both our current shows, Southside and Sherman Showcase, we wrote scripts that we fully believed in. But then we went out and took that script money 
And then we sort of shot what we felt was like the best five minutes, the best 10 minutes, in one case, at least the best <laughs> full pilot, full 24 minute pilot. Um, because sometimes it can be hard for the executives on the other side of the table to understand your vision, especially if you're not writing, you know, in the in the language or even the subject matter that they're used to. Uh, can I add one thing to what you I think what you said is so important. The one piece I would add is, is you know, and you kind of alluded to this, Diallo, when you first started talking, is about your partnerships. I mean, I still work with people who I've been working with for 15, 20 years. I do think, you know, once you guys figure out like, oh, okay, I'm really good at writing. Oh, this person's really good. That's what we did. We had a friend who was a really good camera person. You know, we had other friends who were really great with lights. We had one friend who did not mind doing the shopping for costumes. We had other friends who just wanted to be in front of the camera. And we just all got together. You know, we kind of put the circle together and we work with each other. And I, and I always tell people when, when they approach me about, you know, um, oh, I want to do, you know, kind of similarly some of the stuff that y'all have done. I always say, you know, you got to get with your friends. You got to get with your circle. You got to get with like-minded people who are as hungry as you are because it's not, you know, a race. It's, it's, it's truly a, it's not a sprint. Pardon me. It's absolutely a marathon. And those relationships are going to be so important. You know, even as you get older, there are people who, you know, might change what they do, but then there are some who get really great at what they do. And now you have a friend who was putting you in little small short films and now that person's out directing big movies and you guys still work together. So you just never know. Um, but the best thing to do is invest in your, invest in your peers. I think that's just the best, the best, one of the best moves we ever made. You guys have any advice for like finding that group? I mean, I've heard a lot of stand-up comedians talk about the other ones who are not as serious or not as serious about their craft or not putting in the work. Like, how do you know? Is it just motivation, work ethic? Like, what are some of those traits you look for in partnerships? Mm -hmm. I think in my case, you know, and in Bichir's case by extension, I think that, you know, it, it was helpful to join some of the theaters around town. You know, like there are people who, you know, I saw perform for the first time at UCB and Improv Olympic. You know, I, I can remember, you know, seeing Wyatt Cenac before he was in our sketch group performing with Colton Dunn on the stage and thinking, oh, those guys are funny. I think that the shorthand of your answer, quite honestly, is just who's making you laugh? Whether you're in, in class, you know, but she knows the story. There, there was a guy who was in my uh, uh, Groundlings class of all places who was really, really funny. And I would always see him pop up in like the occasional KFC commercial. And I was like, why is that guy not have more? And years later, Bashir and I ended up on a TV show, The Last OG, and they were trying to decide who was going to play Tiffany Haddish's white husband. And it came down between a very well-known actor and my old friend from Groundlings class. And I was like, you know, choose Ryan. Ryan is a hilarious dude, and I don't know why he hasn't had more success, because in class, that dude would make us laugh like, you, you'd think Will Ferrell was in the class, and we were laughing because mm -hmm. we were forced to. Like, it was just that funny. Um, I think take the classes you know, do the open mics, just get out there, decide who you think is funny. And then when it comes time to form Voltron, shout out to all the old people out there who remember what Voltron is. <laughs> when, it, when it comes time to form the run, right? The old reference is coming. <laughs> kids then, like, um, you kids like Trends or Z, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The kids love G-Force and Battle of the Planets. Um, you know, when it comes down to the Maycross saga, now we're just getting nerdy. I know um, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll form You'll form a better group of just people that you've met when nobody was famous. than when you are sort of knocking on somebody's door and they already have it all. And then they just, they think you're trying to use it. No, like meet, meet everybody when they're, when they're up and coming. I say, go ahead. B. 
No, that's I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think you nailed it. Yeah. It's it's because the best thing about taking those classes, you know, I I, would, I can honestly say I don't know that you get much out of those things except for reps, right? Like the best thing about even if you play sports, the best thing about going to a basketball camp or football, it's really just more time playing the game, more time getting comfortable. Um, and, and sometimes those classes, that's all they can really offer you is just more time to do it. So you're just not sitting at home playing video games. Like at least I'm out working on a scene. But the best part about it is you meet people. And I, and I, I can honestly say I got my SAG card because of a acting class I took. I met a yeah. woman because of a play I did. I did a play <laughs> in Los Feliz, California. And one of the women in the play uh, ended up being a friend. She was taking this screen uh, on-screen acting class with actual casting directors. And she said, oh, you should take this class. And I took that class, and one of the actual casting directors for the Drew Carey show way back in the day uh, was one of the teachers. And he was like, oh, you're really funny, and why don't you come in and read for Drew? So it really, that's how I got my, I ended up booking the part, and I got my SAG card. So I say all that to say that the all is totally right. You know, even if you don't know anybody in whatever city you're in, just take some classes, because that's the best way to start meeting folks. So tell me about the idea for Southside. How did this kind of come together? What were some of the logistics of getting this uh, on HBO Max? Oh, it's a long and an argument. <laughs> the brief version of it. Uh, we had just wanted to do a show. We had, we had been writing for Jimmy Fallon. We had left there. We wanted to do our own TV show. Um, we originally were going to do a show in Diallo's hometown of Atlanta. That didn't work out. So we're like, okay, well, let's do something in my hometown of Chicago. At the same time, my brother Sultan was one of the creators, you know, and, and two of my boys from high school who are also Sultan's good friends, uh, Kareem and Quincy, the twins, they have been laughing about. Quincy, one of the twins, used to work at this place called Renna Center, where you could like rent appliances and stuff. And he had all these really hilarious and kind of terrible stories about the different type of people and, and folks he would meet around Chicago when he was doing that job. And it was like a eureka moment for us because it was like, oh wait, that's a great idea, you know? Uh, because if we do a show about a Renna Center type place, it really just allows us to go all over Chicago. Because what we really wanted to do was a show that moved like The Simpsons. We wanted a show where anybody could be the star of an episode. And that was really just funny and, and sort of created this idea that Chicago or the South side of Chicago is a small town. So what that means practically is that folks just run into each other a lot. So you end up developing, you know, either positive or negative relationships with the small town neighbors, but you do have very strong feelings that come into play. And so all those sort of pieces began to fall together. And ultimately what the Alice says is true. We actually shot a sizzle reel because we said, look, we're making this comedy that, you know, Hollywood is never going to be able to read this script and totally get this. Like, that's impossible. But maybe if they see it, they can kind of get it. And so we shot a little sizzle reel. We turned that in with the pilot script. And I can honestly say that, you know, it allowed us to really figure the show out. It allowed us to show it to them. And so by the time they saw it, it was like the idea was quite clear. And it was, you know, luckily for us, Ken Alterman at Comedy Central um, had sort of the, 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 the good instincts to say, hey, there's something really great here. Um, and yeah, we were able to make this show. Did you guys have any difficulties with the world building? Like, does that ever overcomplicate things? Do you start small and then expand? How did that, how did that kind of work its way out? Uh, you know, we love world building. And I think, in our, yeah. one, you know, obviously, as you can tell, we're both sort of sci-fi comic nerds. And I think world building is like the, the essence of, of some of the best comics is like, you know, you read this great comic book and you're like, well, that was fantastic, but it also alludes to so much more depth and complexity and so many more weird characters that I want to know more about, you know, and we felt like The Simpsons was really the first place that had done that on television where you were like, who the fuck is Disco Stew? Like, I, I want to know more about Disco Stew. 
right? So practically, how does it happen? Uh, the writer, the writer room. Uh, it, it won't be that we'll come in and say, hey, everybody, let's expand the world this season. Uh, it actually starts much smaller. You just say, hey, guys, who has a, who has a funny idea for an episode? Um, and then as we do that, then other writers was like, wait a second, what if it's this character? And then we can reference this thing that happened in season one. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you sort of build it in some ways, you kind of retro build it. You start with this great <laughs> story, and then you yeah. let the other pieces kind of be added on as you, as you figure out what makes the best story storytelling. By the way, we we are aware, like we we love it when fans uh, of the show oh, come back sure. to us with, with comments. <laughs> yeah, so somebody out, out in the universe discovered that uh, we use uh, the same shirt on multiple <laughs> characters in the background, in the background of season two. And uh, we're happy that they pointed that out because that is definitely not a function of a limited wardrobe budget. That was entirely, entirely intentional. So it was meant if, to do that. Uh, Totally meant to do it. So look out for an episode that explains that shirt coincidence in season three. How much um, now that you're kind of expanding into multiple seasons, do you also go back and rewatch? Like, how much do you guys need to know, or does the writers' room need to know about the history of the show in terms of like some of those callbacks and things like that? Yeah, listen, I think if you're building a world, everybody on the show sort of owes it to both themselves, the show and the, and the, and the fans of the show, the eagle eyed watchers who notice a shirt uh, to be really well versed in the show. I mean, the good news is that we cook this, this show and all of our shows with a lot of love. So um, we love it when, when we, when we or fans discover a deep cut, so to speak, like something that's like really just there for the most eagle eyed, you know, watchers, the most hawk-eyed listeners, all the animals. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll absolutely, um, you know, go back. I, I remember every every executive producer on the show went back and watched season one the weekend before we started shooting because we wanted to be aware of all the places where we could further expand. You know, I mean, like we 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 love working off a strong script, but we also love throwing curveballs and, and and throwing ideas to improv to our actors. So yes, yeah, so one hundred percent, we we are well versed in all the all the minutia of what has come before and i think as you get deeper and deeper into seasons you don't necessarily want to become like uh some of those other shows that get so caught up in being self-referential that nobody can jump on board one thing i think is great about this show is that you could actually start watching Southside with season two episode four and then go back and start watching it you know it's, it's, it's not a pure narrative and um if you watch it in order you'll get some mini arcs to some characters but it's 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 an episodic hard comedy you know it's not a dramedy we're never going to do a hug it out episode of this show because we look you get enough tough news and, and poignancy from everywhere else in the universe this can be the one show where you just tune in and belly laugh and and feel good and watch the next episode you think audiences expect that it does feel like most shows have even as silly as they are they still have some moment of pathos or whatever that like has to be there do you guys i mean do you feel the networks like require that to some degree or like how have you guys kind of avoided some of that oh they absolutely some networks really do push that because they feel like you know if if we can give a suggestion to make this show more of all things yeah. and expand the audience right so they go like yeah this is a funny show but there are people who like to have comedy but then they want that comedy to have a moment where it's like really heartfelt and so how do we get those it's also sort of seen as like a shortcut to be in the emmy talk 
come award mm. season, I think. Like, I think that, that that's also on the barometer. They're like, oh, it can be really funny, but if we really hit him with some heart, <laughs> then people look at him like, oh, I'm, I'm really feeling something. You know, I think that Bashir and I, we believe that you'll something if you feel something. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that you have to make something less funny in some ridiculous attempt to try and win an award again. I think that uh, if we do our job, then people will enjoy the show enough to take notice. And again, we, I feel like we don't do the things that we do, even though we now can say that we've done shows that have won Emmys. I don't think that we do it chasing that. You know what I mean? I think that um, there was somebody who's like, will we see the characters go deeper this season? Michelle and I talked about this. We feel like you do see the characters go deeper, but we go deeper in our way. You know, we don't go deeper in some sad sack, you know, what we call it in the business schmuck bait way of like seeing a character crying their eyes out. You know, I, th- I just, I think we've seen enough of that. Go ahead, B. And I think originality is, is, is it's the only thing that I've seen um, for me at least work. I think there are definitely, you know, epi- writers out there who uh, will make another show that's like something else and have some modicum or some tremendous success. I mean, who knows what, what folks do. Uh, but, you know, I just come back to the Muppet show, which I used to love growing up. And I think about, how wonderful that show was but i also now that i'm older i've really begun to think about how hard it must have been for jim henson to get that shit on the air because like there was no precedent he was pitching executives who were looking at him like who is this weird fucking hippie with these puppets in my office what the fuck is you know i mean like he's in their office with like a puppet on his hand trying to be like then the kermit the frog and they were like okay thank you sir so (laughs) you know but you got to understand that that's the work and that that bit of ugliness you know, is, is what was important for him to go through so that we all get to experience the, the work. And so it's never easy, but I think it's always worth it to try and do something original because ultimately, especially if you're doing something original, then it's like, you're the, you're the actual, um, you know, you're the key master, right? You know more about it than anybody else. So then when executives come and say, what about this? What about that? You can be like, well, actually that doesn't fit with the vision because you have the vision. You're the key for the vision because you've chosen to sort of stick to your guns and make something original. Um, and I say that knowing full well that getting something original on there is way harder than getting something derivative on. Um, but I think it, I, I think doing something original is, is, for me at least, is always worth it. Um, I've never regretted any big swings that I've ever t- taken in life. And I think that most people, you know, won't, you know, you, you'll be proud of yourself for taking that big swing. I think it's worth it. Just any other advice, if you were starting today or could go back and give yourself advice in the beginning, what might you tell yourself or what, what advice might you pass on to young comic writers today? I think that most of all, just start doing it today. Like if you want to write something, start writing it today. If you want to be a director, you know, find a buddy who can write and 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 direct his or her script. You know, there's no reason uh, to delay. You don't have to spend a lot of money on, on school. He said, you can definitely go out there and shoot something with your friends and you'll get better for it. You know, and I think that that's the ethos, the work ethos, work ethic that Bashir and I have uh, come at this at from a very long time ago. You can accomplish a lot in 12 years if you just start shooting, you know, today. But I think start the clock today so that you can get those 10,000 hours in. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.